I'm Stephen Hundley from IUPUI, and this is the award-winning podcast, Leading Improvements in Higher Education, a service of the Assessment Institute in Indianapolis. Our sponsor for this season is the Center for Assessment and Research Studies at James Madison University. This episode features a Leadership Perspectives conversation with Dr. Rosalind Clark Artis, President and CEO of Benedict College. President Artis shares with us her leadership journey, advice for aspiring leaders, and future trends, including the role historically black colleges and universities play in higher education. I know you will enjoy our time with President Artis during this episode of Leading Improvements in Higher Education. On today's episode, we are so delighted to be joined by President Rosalind Artis, the President and CEO of Benedict College. President Artis, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much for having me. And please, please call me Rosalind. It's a delight to be here. Rosalind, thank you. I, I am, again, delighted you're with us. And we'll get right into it. And as we begin, we'd like to learn a little bit about your professional background. So please tell us briefly some of your career history, including what led you to your current role. Well, thank you for that. Uh, I am a recovering attorney. I have pursued a somewhat circuitous route to the presidency. As I alluded to, uh, practice law for nine years in West Virginia, where I'm from, um, and caught the education bug, as it were. I was teaching part-time as an adjunct instructor, teaching business law, basic concepts of that nature. And a young lady came up to me at the conclusion of a class and slipped me a note. And the note simply read, you changed my life. She was a young African-American and was studying to be a paralegal because she did not see a career as an attorney as something that might be attainable for someone who looked like her. Uh, You may know that West Virginia is a 3.4% minority state. And so she had never met a person of color that was an attorney before, let alone a woman. And um, I was the only one in the city at the time. And so It was a very heady notion to me that you could change someone's life in an hour and 15 minutes twice a day, uh, far more substantial than uh, being the butt of attorney jokes, lawyer jokes that are prevalent at parties. And so uh, I began to be much more committed to education, um, thoroughly enjoyed the process and the transformation that can occur uh, when there is a connection between a faculty member and a student or a staff member and a student. Uh, So I continue to teach more. And ultimately resigned my practice of law, uh, left my firm and went back to school to, quote, earn a doctorate. As you know, the uh, JD is considered a professional doctorate and not recognized as an earned doctorate, as though they're given away for Christmas in the academy. And so after going back to school at Vanderbilt University and completing my doctorate in higher education leadership and policy, came back into the university setting uh, first as a faculty program director, chair, dean, provost, and ultimately president. My first president was at a sister historically black college, Florida Memorial University down in Miami Gardens, Florida. And subsequent to serving four years there, I had the privilege of joining the Benedict family in 2017 as their 14th and first woman president, uh, where I have been uh, happily serving for the last five years. It has been an absolute delight to engage with uh, the city of Columbia and certainly the students that we educate at Benedict College. 
Well, Rosalind, thanks for that introduction and background from recovering lawyer to changing lives. And we appreciate learning about your career trajectory. You mentioned, of course, your time at Benedict College as the leader there for the past few years. So for listeners who may not be as familiar with Benedict College, tell us a little bit about its uh, history, its mission, you know, a little bit about the institution itself, including programs you offer, the students you serve, and any maybe points of pride you'd like to share. Now, I don't know that we have time for all of that, Stephen. Uh, there are so many things that I'm proud of at Benedict College, but I'll give you a sense of first the nature of the institution. Uh, Benedict was founded in 1870. Uh, it is found it was founded by a northern missionary, Bathsheba A. Benedict, a woman. Uh, who chose to invest uh, $8,000, which she inherited from her late husband, combined with $5,000 of her own money, which was a pretty impressive notion to me, uh, purchasing an 80-acre slave plantation here in Columbia, South Carolina, which is the ground on which we now uh, stand. So Benedict has uh, been consistently in business for 153 years, initially educating the descendants of slaves nearly five years past the Emancipation Proclamation, to be teachers and preachers, uh, now having evolved into a thriving liberal arts college that offers a host of professional degree programs. We continue to educate uh, successive generations of the descendants of slaves who may have toiled on this very property. Uh, we share a, a long and distinct history of social engagement, civil rights, uh, have trained tremendous educators and gone out into the field to do wonderful work. Uh, the former uh, leader of the, the first African-American leader of the Olympic Games is a graduate of Benedict College. Septima P. Clark, who is known uh, widely as the mother of the civil rights movement, designated as so by Martin Luther King himself, is a graduate of Benedict College. So we have a long and distinct history of producing social change agents at Benedict. Today, our primary focus is on educating students for 21st century jobs. So while we retain our liberal arts underpinnings, we want our students to be able to think critically, communicate effectively, and be consumers of information and solvers of problems. But we recognize that the 21st century workforce requires a high level of technical skill. Uh, and so we have evolved considerably, particularly in the last several years. We focused our energies on what would be considered in-demand fields, cybersecurity, computer science, uh, engineering, to just name a few. We have spent considerable energy investing in our entrepreneurial programs. We believe it's important for the young people who attend Benedict College, primarily low-wealth, first-generation kids of color, to not only be positioned to get a job, but to create jobs in the economy. So we have a business development center, we have a statewide women's business center, and we invest heavily in providing our students opportunities to take what might be a side hustle that helps them make the ends meet to a thriving, sustainable, scalable business. And so we're very, very committed to the notion of entrepreneurship here. And finally, social justice. As I alluded to earlier, our goal here with our liberal arts underpinning is to ensure that our students have an equity framework, if you will, that is a lens through which to view the problems of the day. We want them to be informed, engaged, insightful, thoughtful problem solvers. And I think if we can achieve that, then Benedict has a very bright next 153 years to look forward to. Educating students for the 21st century and in doing so, producing social change agents. President Rosalind Artis is describing, of course, the mission 
and the outcomes of Benedict College. And now would be a great time to invite listeners to visit their website, benedict.edu. Of course, Benedict College is a historically Black college and university, one of several. And for additional context, President Artist, Rosalind, if you will, let's have a general discussion about historically Black colleges and universities, also known as HBCUs. What are some of the characteristics of an HBCU and how have these types of institutions evolved over the years and why are they important to us in American higher education? So tell us more about the HBCU story. Certainly. Historically, Black colleges uh, are those institutions which are congressionally delegated, uh, designated, if you will. They were founded prior to 1964, having their primary mission uh, as one of educating, again, former formerly enslaved individuals in America. Importantly, these institutions uh, have never excluded anyone, however. They were born of exclusion. Uh, opportunities for African Americans were, quite frankly, non-existent. Ergo, the development of historically Black colleges, which were the uh, separate but equal alternative at the higher education level uh, for young African Americans or actually adult African Americans seeking an opportunity to change uh, their fortunes, their lives, and those of their families and communities. Uh, the institutions have continued to thrive. We are very often asked the question of our, whether these institutions are still necessary in, a, in an arguably post-racial society. I would argue emphatically that they are. Uh, they are specialty institutions uh, such that they are mission-driven. Our primary mission is the education of um, individuals who were historically disenfranchised. However, as I alluded to earlier, uh, that is not an exclusive mission. That is not one of exclusivity and exclusion. Our institutions were um, safe harbors for Jewish refugee scholars who were fleeing Nazi Germany. Uh, we have always been thriving, diverse, global institutions for the most part. Uh, and so I think they provide amazing learning laboratories for students seeking a diverse learning experience. And what we mean by diverse learning experience is that we are very purposeful, very intentional about the material that our students are exposed to. Of course, they are going to read all of the great literary giants, but they are also going to read Langston Hughes. They're also going to read Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou. It is important to us that we center the voices of all people, um, not just majority populations, in ways that enhance and acknowledge the value, the experience, the richness, and the background of every individual uh, in our ecosystem, if you will, uh, in our global economy. And so I think in a, in a nutshell, HBCUs are institutions that provide a quality education very similar to any other higher education institution, but do so in a culturally responsive environment that seeks to provide diverse learning materials, um, wraparound external engagement strategies, and really help students uh, define their goals and their outcomes and chart a path to achieving those goals. I think we're very hands-on. Uh, we're much smaller than many institutions. The largest HBCU in the country is nearly 14,000 students. Uh, the smallest is probably about 200. So you can see there is some diversity in the institution. Some are state, some are private, some are religiously affiliated, others are not. And yet our common denominator really is, um, first, our mission, and secondly, the ways in which we educate and engage our students. I think it's an incredibly holistic, culturally sensitive model that, though 
perhaps may not be best for everyone, certainly provides a valuable contribution for those students uh, that choose these institutions. And I think the outcomes, uh, which I know we'll have a chance to talk about, really make the case for why we still need historically Black colleges. These institutions, though comprising less than 4% of the educations, uh, educational institutions in the country, are, as we often say, punching above their weight, producing 25% or more of our lawyers, judges, engineers, 40% of the Congressional Black Caucus are graduates of historically Black colleges. So I think the record is quite clear that we are overproducing, uh, particularly scholars of color in this country. And as we move toward a majority, minority uh, country, you will need, we will need as a nation, uh, institutions that really have demonstrated the ability to effectively engage, support, and educate people of color uh, who will make tremendous contributions to our society uh, going forward in virtually every area of human endeavor. Rosalind, thank you for describing the significance of HBCUs. And you mentioned, quoting, they are amazing learning laboratories for students seeking a diverse learning experience. I would also invite listeners to consult Season 1, Episode 9 of this podcast, Leading Improvements in Higher Education, where President Artis's colleague, Dr. Verna Orr, was a featured guest where we had a greater discussion about HBCUs. Let's now turn our attention to the role of the college president. So president artists, you certainly know that college presidents have a challenging, dynamic job. Tell us a little bit about what you do in your role and how you spend, if there is such a thing, a typical day or a week. What kind of decisions do you make? Uh, What kind of stakeholders do you engage? And what kind of activities uh, do you participate in in these uh, maybe not so typical days and weeks? Well, you know, Stephen, I often say uh, these are the best of times and the worst of times to be a higher education leader, particularly for a smaller, under-resourced private institution. Um, it is both an exciting challenge and um, one that really takes a fair amount of intestinal fortitude these days. Uh, higher education is obviously a primary public good, in my opinion. Uh, we know that the fastest way out of poverty is an education. It is the great equalizer. It is every cliche you can ever imagine. I have bought in full sale, full stock. I believe deeply in the value of education to transform lives. And so in so doing, I take my job very, very, very seriously. It is the toughest job I have ever loved. I say that all the time. Uh, There is no such thing as a typical day, going back to the sort of list of questions that you posed. Um, I begin my day generally by getting up to speed on what's happening in the rest of the world, Inside Higher Ed, Chronicle of Higher Education, the New York Times, the Washington Post, just to get Um, a finger on the pulse of what might impact my students. As you can imagine, the last week has been particularly exciting as we think about um, debt forgiveness, as we continue to push for increases to Pell, as we think about uh, public view of the value of higher education. And so it's important for me uh, to be very grounded in what's happening outside the gates of my campus and understand uh, how those um, public policy pressures may impact my student on game. So that's typically how my day begins. And from there, it can be a free for all, Uh, certainly trying to find time to engage directly with my students, 
Uh, that is, of course, um, one of my favorite things to do on the campus. I think it is our polar star. It is the oxygen I breathe. It is an opportunity for me to remember each and every day why I chose to do this work. Um, seeing them learning their stories uh, is particularly helpful to me as I begin to fashion solutions to the problems that we face on a day-to-day basis. I'll give you, you know, a perfect example of late. Uh, the last, certainly the last couple of years have been particularly challenging with COVID-19. We have learned so much about our students during the pandemic. I would dare say that there is anything positive about a global pandemic, but I would be honest in suggesting to you that we have the pandemic facilitated an environment of learning for us. Uh, When we had to separate our students from campus, it became very, very clear that our students, unlike many others, did not have the ability to to travel on no notice. Um, Our students do not come from families who had the ability to swipe a credit card to purchase a plane ticket. So evacuating the campus, a decision virtually every college or university president had to make, uh, notwithstanding their circumstances, for us was a slightly different conversation. Our parents primarily are working low-wage hourly jobs. They can't take off in the middle of the week to come pick their children up. So for us, it became a strategic deployment of resources, an immediate fundraise. I'm proud to say that Benedict subsidized the travel of over 125 students. We purchased plane tickets, train tickets, bus tickets. We provided 24-hour transportation to four airports in three states to support and assist our students who may not otherwise have been able to find um, a means to get home. Subsequent to that, we learned very quickly that 31% of Benedict College students um, experience housing insecurity. There was no home to go to, even if their travel was subsidized. And so Benedict worked feverishly to assist with placement opportunities for students, negotiating leases, short-term leases, uh, in many cases paying deposits for our students to get them clean, safe housing during this hiatus that was COVID-19. It was a short-lived hiatus for Benedict College. In August, we reopened, recognizing that, again, that 31% of our students desperately needed for us to reopen. We had a number of students wrestling with food insecurity and a whole host of other challenges, not the least of which proved to be access to technology. 12% of Benedict students um, resided in areas that would be considered digital deserts. While we provided laptops and hotspots to so many of our students, the fact remains that even the mighty Apple PC is a brick if there is no broadband infrastructure for that computer to connect to. And so we have taken up the charge on a national level for broadband access for low wealth communities. Congressman Clavern in our district has been very aggressive in this regard, and we have been right behind him cheering all the way, not just for Benedict students, but for South Carolina more broadly and for all communities that are largely underserved. So I share those examples. Um, One, I am very proud, um, but certainly don't say those things in a boastful way. I say them to illustrate the fact that as an HBCU that um, has committed itself to educating students, again, low wealth, first generation kids of color, many who come from rural, low wealth environments, the things that we have to wrestle with in a day go far beyond the classroom. Certainly education is our primary mission, but it's incumbent upon us if we're truly committed to this work and we are at Benedict College to ensure that there's a holistic approach to serving our students that recognizes their lived experiences. And COVID really 
forced us to focus more deeply on the individual student experience. I could have told you pre-COVID that 84% of my kids are Pell eligible. I could have told you that 71% of my kids were first generation, that 67% are South Carolina residents. I knew by numbers. What COVID forced me to do is learn the stories, the faces, the names, and the unique challenges faced by the individual students. And we were privileged to be a small enough institution that we had um, the time, if we were willing to work 18-hour days, and we are, uh, to get to know our students on a very personal level and to fashion solutions that were perhaps unique to those students and then ultimately scalable to the population so that our students could be successful, um, both during that period and today. Now we find ourselves... uh, Prayerfully, on the back end of COVID, as it's beginning to dissipate, though cases still remain, and of course, other strains continue to develop. Um, But dealing with students who have been separated socially for some time, how do we reach and engage those students more effectively? And so starting my day with reading what other colleagues are doing and thinking critically about what we can do at Benedict College, marrying that sort of external knowledge with my internal realities, and then going about my day, meeting with the members of my team. You've mentioned one of the most stellar uh, ones, Dr. Berna Orr, who works in our institutional effectiveness area, who is now my chief of staff and right arm, right arm through most of this, uh, we think critically on a daily basis um, how we can make things better for our students, how we can create conditions conducive to deep learning, to student engagement, to ultimate student success, however you measure that for the individual student, and how globally or um, organization-wide we can move Benedict forward because the strength of the institution uh, certainly is... um, enhances our ability to serve our students. So our financial strength, uh, our ability to think about programs and services are all contingent upon um, our being thoughtful, uh, being collaborative. Uh, We think deeply about partnerships with other small under-resourced institutions to leverage our joint capacities to ensure that our students have the very best of everything. So it is hard work. It is hard work, uh, but it is worth it. It is the toughest job I have ever loved. The toughest job you've ever loved. Rosalind is describing her experiences as a college president, in this case, the leader of Benedict College. But President Artis, I would like to go back in time and ask you to talk about some of your leadership experiences and your career progression. You mentioned that you had the ability to change someone's life. That was the quote you referenced at the top of our conversation that a student had provided to you. Tell us about some of those change makers in your own life and what you've learned along the way. That is a wonderful question, Stephen. Uh, As I mentioned at the outset of my introduction, um, I grew up in Southern West Virginia. I am a quintessential coal miner's daughter. Uh, My father, I was born in Springfield, Massachusetts, and my father relocated our family to Southern West Virginia because in that day, um, the coal mines were among the only uh, fields where a black man could make, quote, union scale, close quote, wages. And so we became West Virginians uh, when I was barely two years old. Um, that is a very homogenous state. Uh, it is entirely dependent. Its economy is entirely dependent on the coal industry. Uh, and coal miners generally are considered to be um, well-paid, arguably, um, notwithstanding the occupational risk associated with coal mining. Um, And so growing up in that environment, I will tell you that outside my own family, while my parents encouraged my brother and I uh, to read, to study, to achieve, um, there's very little incentive in a state 
that has an industrial um, workforce uh, to pursue a higher education. And so you are operating in an environment where education is not encouraged uh, and not fully supported just because the economy doesn't depend on it. Uh, And so in growing up, I had wonderful teachers. I was educated in public schools, wonderful teachers who said things like, you are smart. You're my best reader. Uh, And I will tell you that as my love language is encouraging words. And so the wonderful, wonderful teachers I had there in Southern West Virginia absolutely provided me the oxygen I needed to grow. Um, I got prepared to go off to college, but it occurred to me for the first time that though my parents had been tremendously supportive of us, they'd never encouraged me to go to college. Uh, I later learned in conversations with my parents that both were very, very concerned that they had no ability to pay. There was no way to send me to college. And so they did not want to encourage me to pursue that path, knowing that there was no opportunity for me to actually avail myself of a college education financially. Uh, I grew up in the Reagan 80s, uh, which is not a criticism. It's simply a fact. Um, My family was not eligible for a Pell Grant because my parents worked. We were the working poor. And so um, I started applying for colleges by myself uh, without the support of my parents necessarily in the old days where you had to walk to the library and go through a card catalog to find information about colleges and universities back in the stone ages, Um, but applied to colleges, everyone I could think of. Um, And I received admission to most, but certainly not the resources. West Virginia State, then college, now university, sent me a letter of admission and offered me a full academic scholarship. Unbeknownst to me at the time, West Virginia State College was a historically black college. I didn't even know what the work, what the acronym HBCU stood for. I didn't know there were black colleges. I grew up in an environment where I was one of only a handful of black children in my school. So I had no knowledge of historically black colleges. Uh, and so I, I chose to attend West Virginia State simply because they offered me a scholarship and I desperately needed that opportunity. Imagine my surprise when I arrived on the campus of West Virginia State and noticed that most of the people looked an awful lot like me. My teachers looked a little like me. My president looked like me. Uh, and so very quickly wondered, where is this place? What have I, uh, what have I gotten myself into? Um, and, and so I, I say to people all the time, HBCUs are places where students can be themselves. For me, an HBCU was a place that taught me who myself was. I had no idea what it meant to be an African-American. I hadn't grown up in the presence of surrounded by African-Americans. I didn't know what that construct looked like if there is such a thing. And so found myself in a very real way at West Virginia State. And so while people perhaps didn't know formally that they were my mentors, they absolutely were. My president's wife was an attorney, uh, a judge, in fact, and I I followed her around. I followed her career. I read everything I could about her. Uh, my provost was a dynamic African-American woman who I absolutely idolized. I began to read about other women attorneys and judges and educators and, and could not learn enough about these people. So I didn't have the guts at, this, at that juncture to approach them and say, would you mentor me? But from afar, they were giants. And they absolutely mentored me indirectly um, because I had role models and examples. Never, never, never underestimate the value of role modeling. Um, You never know who's watching. And I try to be mindful of that even now. 
in my own career. My students are watching me. It is important what they see in me. I am myself a mother. It is important that when my daughter looks at me, she sees she sees something worthy of emulation or at least um, something worthy of being tolerated. She's a teenager now, so she may feel differently. But I had wonderful role models. Again, they were involuntary role models in many respects. As I embarked on the practice of law, those, those judges and lawyers that I had so looked up to became my colleagues, dear friends, and certainly much more formalized mentoring relationships developed at that time. Um, and when I made my transition, they were the people who called and said, you're an amazing lawyer. I can't believe you're going to leave the practice. And I said, I have found something that is so much more fulfilling to me. Uh, and they support me to this day. Uh, we, they, I still tell lawyer jokes uh, when I'm around them, but um, I, I found something that, that I'm much more passionate about that absolutely gives me a reason to get up every morning. Uh, and I certainly have enjoyed the valuable role models in higher education. When you think about um, folks like um, Dr. Dorothy Kowser Yancey, who is herself a two-time uh, woman HBCU president, uh, and the example that she set, Janetta Besh Cole, who served both at Spelman and Bennett College, um, are amazing role models to me, very, very active uh, role models, and they absolutely assume that responsibility. They are not unwilling role models. They have guided my career um, in ways that are almost incalculable uh, in helping me to make some important decisions and be thoughtful. We all need a safe space sometime to just decompress. And so having those um, African-American female role models is critically important to me. And I certainly have role models that are not people of color and not even women. Uh, I have both role models, mentors, and sponsors. Uh, and certainly I encourage all of my students to go about um, stewarding those kinds of relationships that are critically important to your professional development. Rosalind, thank you for describing role models, mentors, and sponsors that have influenced your life. And in particular, you're reminding us of the importance of offering encouraging words and being mindful of role modeling, even if we aren't aware we're doing so explicitly. Well, let's continue our conversation about leaders and leadership. And Rosalind, let me ask you to maybe describe for our listeners some advice you have for aspiring leaders and maybe what you look for uh, in leaders from your perch as a college president. That is a wonderful, wonderful question. Uh, I will tell you, I'll take the last part first. What I look for uh, are three very simple characteristics and everyone really knows. Um, I, I state them emphatically all the time. Smart, hardworking, and kind. Smart, hardworking, and kind. And I often tell my team, you can be two out of three. I'm not expecting perfection. You can be a really, really hard worker um, and maybe have to work a little harder because you're perhaps take a little more time to learn. Um, but if you're kind and you're hardworking, that's okay with me. If you're really smart and a little lazy, you work smarter instead of harder and you're kind, uh, we can work just fine together. Uh, any combination of the three. And if you're all three, you're on my cabinet. If you're smart, hardworking, and kind, um, I find great value and individuals who are uh, top of their game intellectually, uh, academically, who know what they're doing, um, who can articulate with clarity their vision, their goals, their outcomes, their ideas, and who are willing to go shoulder to shoulder with me when it does take 16 hours in a day, 
when we do have to stay late and work long hours because it's worth it. Uh, so I value tremendously individuals who both demonstrate a high level of acumen, a willingness to hard work, to work very hard, and are kind people. Uh, if you are unkind, this is probably not a place for you. Uh, and by kind, I mean um, a commitment to our mission, a commitment to our students, a willingness to um, show empathy, a willingness to engage and to listen more than you speak, um, to hear for understanding rather than simply to uh, repeat the words. I think those things matter in individuals. And so those are the things that I look for uh, in my team members and my employees. Um, on the flip side, uh, the tools that I think you need to be successful um, are very, very similar. I think there is no substitute for preparation. Uh, certainly, we learn on the job every single day. Uh, new, new situations require new strategies and new solutions. Um, but there is no substitution for um, preparation. You heard me say earlier in the conversation that I practiced law for a decade. Uh, there are lots of, of attorneys who lead institutions. But for me, particularly as an African-American woman, it was important that I not have to explain away any lack of credentialing uh, or any deficits in my CV. Uh, and so I opted to take the path uh, to return to school and, quote, earn the appropriate credential. There's no substitution for preparation. And, and in many instances, again, particularly for women and people of color, uh, for formal preparation. Uh, and so I would urge people, do the work. Put in the work. Uh, the second piece is relationships. I mean, everyone talks about it's about uh, who you know, not what you know. I'm not sure I would agree with that entirely. Uh, I think it takes both. I think it takes uh, a, a depth of knowledge, a level of preparation, formal and informal. But relationships do matter. That's why it's important to be kind. Uh, that's why it's important to be willing to hear another perspective, uh, to engage an individual that may be different than you, and to listen respectfully and perhaps learn something. Uh, it is helpful to extend yourself uh, beyond your own comfort zone often to meet new people and engage new experiences. You never know when you're going to meet that person again. So in addition to preparation, I do think engagement and relationship building is critically important. And finally, I think a sense of humor is just really valuable. Uh, this is very hard work. This is, as I referred to it earlier, hard work. Uh, and when it, and because of that, we have a tendency to own it in ways that, um, quite frankly, can impact our physiological well-being. Um, the stress of worrying about these children, these students, uh, my babies, as I often call them, uh, and the outcomes for them and the opportunities that we afford them and what we're able to provide often keeps me up at night. And so I have to maintain some balance, some sense of humor, some ability not to take myself too seriously, uh, but rather take the work very seriously. And so I would suggest that anyone who is aspiring to a position like this one be well prepared, be willing to engage and develop important relationships and maintain your sense of humor for the hard days. It certainly um, has been a benefit to me. Wise words indeed from President Rosalind Artis concerning leadership advice and what she looks for in leaders that work with and for her. In the answer to the last question, you referenced things that might keep you up at night. So I'd like to just ask, what uh, what keeps you awake at two o'clock in the morning? What what do you grapple with? What are some of the challenges and opportunities you think about overnight? 
let's see, I dream of hitting the lottery so that I can provide my students with everything they need. Uh, those are the good days when I'm just dreaming about the ability uh, to, to get the resources necessary to, to enhance my students' experience. Uh, on a much more serious note, um, what keeps me up at night is uninformed policymaking, uninformed policymakers um, that inadvertently exact harm on the least of our students. Uh, as we think about what's happening nationally and, and policy, I, I remember the Parent PLUS loan debacle. I remember how it devastated campuses with, with large numbers of low wealth students whose parents had no option other than the Parent PLUS loan to secure their, their students' academic futures. Um, there was no intent to harm those students, but because the policy was not fully thought out, it had a devastating impact on our students. I, I watch the conversations around Pell and its ability to keep pace with the cost of higher education. I listen to the conversations around debt that we're having now very loudly all over the country. And I, I would suggest that students who have significant loan debt, um, loan debt is a function of poverty. We have to address the underlying conditions uh, that create uh, poverty for our students. Students have loan debt because the Pell Grant has not kept pace. Those students, so this recent debt forgiveness, which we celebrate and appreciate, is nothing more than a reimbursement to the poorest students who should never have had to take out the loans in the first place, but for the inability of Pell to keep pace with the cost of higher education. And so I'm, I'm up all night tossing and turning and screaming. Why can't they see the implications of these policies? Why don't people understand the genesis of the problem and fashion solutions that genuinely get at the heart of those problems, the root cause of those problems and support those most in need? Um, so policy keeps me up at night. Um, we thought about we listen to the conversations around free community college. That is not a bad thing in theory. However, I was deeply concerned that it would effectively um, act as a tracking mechanism where low wealth students were automatically tracked into the trades because they could not afford a baccalaureate degree. And their parents who are incredibly price sensitive for good reason, would suggest to that student, you have to go to the community college and take the two years free with the hope of transferring later. We know that the transfer pipeline is porous. A lot of students fall out of the transfer pipeline and never achieve the baccalaureate degree. So if you are incentivizing financially poor children to only choose community colleges, you have created another tracking me mechanism that has significant unintended consequences for the poorest of our students. And so I offer that as an example of some policy that on its face is equitable and right, and yet may have a devastating impact on the poorest of our students in this country, and particularly um, minoritized students, quite frankly. So I toss and turn over policy a lot, um, Stephen. That probably is my greatest challenge. Uninformed policy at that. Uh, President Artis, thanks for sharing some of the things you grapple with overnight. As we draw our time together to a close, I have a couple of remaining questions for you. I wanted to mention, of course, you are the founding co-chair for the Historically Black College and University Annual Sustainability Summit, which is now in its fourth year. Rosalind, tell us a little bit about that project and its role in and contributions to higher education. Okay. 
What a wonderful question. Thank you. Yes, uh, I had the privilege of co-founding the Sustainability Summit. It um, was born of a conversation I was having with a gentleman named Tommy Dorch, who heads the 100 Black Men of America. I was serving on a panel, and we were talking about solutions to the challenges facing historically Black colleges, not the least of which um, was resource, resource development. We know that our state-funded historically Black colleges have suffered from a history of underfunding. We know that our private historically Black colleges, which largely trained teachers and preachers, did not have the significant alumni bases with capacity to endow uh, significant funds or to create huge endowments. And so we knew that we had a history of under-resourcing both in the private sector and in the public institutions. And we were wrestling with how do we ensure that no other HBCU closes its doors? We have seen several HBCUs unfortunately, get into accreditation trouble, largely as a result of a lack of resources. So as we get being we begin to brainstorm ways to attack the problem at its root. You might be develop, you might be hearing a theme developing here. I believe deeply in root cause analysis and going right to the heart of the problem as opposed to a treetops approach. Uh, and so we began to bring together um, policymakers. We did have elected officials. Uh, we had funders private foundations, um, corporations, individuals who had a vested interest in ensuring a well-trained and diverse workforce brought them to the table, as well as many of our institutional peers to really have meaningful conversations about ways we could collaborate to improve outcomes, ways that we could uh, find cost savings mechanisms, whether it is um, shared back office functions, um, course sharing, uh, creative ways to address resource deficiencies so that our campuses uh, could be healthy, prosperous, and grow, and more importantly, be sustainable into the next 150 years of our nation's history. And so in our fourth year now, we have seen wonderful relationships born as a result of the Sustainability Summit. It certainly has provided a collaborative opportunity for our, our institutional peers to come together um, and to find ways to collaborate one with another. Uh, we have sensitized our elected officials to policymaking and the important implications of the policies. Uh, we have talked with government officials about access to um, federal dollars, uh, whether they are grants and contracts. I think we made the most headway in that particular space. Uh, the White House Initiative has engaged with us considerably, uh, as well as, again, a number of elected officials. So I think we're making some progress. I think we're beginning to see uh, an environment that's far more conducive to uh, HBCUs thriving than to penalizing HBCUs for being poor uh, and not always able to meet the standard as it relates to um, financial stability. Preparing institutions for the next 150 years of our histories. You've been describing the historically Black College and University Annual Sustainability Summit, for which you are a founding co-chair. Rosalind, as we look ahead in the next few years, what are some of the major trends you see shaping higher education? And how has Benedict College specifically prepared to address some of those trends? I think the future is bright. I, I remain excited about the work that we're doing at Benedict. I remain excited about the future for historically Black colleges. I remain excited about the pipeline of bright and talented kids coming out of our high schools that have demonstrated tremendous resilience in the face of an unprecedented pandemic. I, I think we are well positioned because we're thinking about it. We're well positioned because we have a fluid uh, strategic plan that allows us to be agile and nimble and thoughtful and to embrace new technologies, new ideas, and new programs. Programs. 
Benedict in particular, uh, streamlined its program offerings uh, to eliminate those programs that did not lead to tremendous opportunities for our students. We know that our students um, come to college to get a job. They come to be educated, to be sure. But low-wealth minority students need to get a job at the conclusion of their degree. And so we really focused on programs that had a high probability, uh, high potential for our students to go directly into the workforce and or into graduate or professional schools. I alluded to uh, cyber security, engineering, computer science, uh, and a host of disciplines that really create that opportunity, as well as our entrepreneurship offerings. Uh, we are focused on multiple populations for the first time. I think we're looking now at our adult learners. There are 300,000 adults in South Carolina with some college and no degree, um, 62% of whom look a bit like my demographic. And so we're being creative about ways to fully serve those students, including our second chance Pell students, formerly incarcerated, our former foster care populations, our military population. Uh, I think we're being very creative and very thoughtful about those unique populations and thinking about a care model that will best sustain their success and allow them to achieve their academic goals. Uh, I think we are seeing um, a change, a transformational seismic shift in higher education that has never before been presented uh, and prayerfully never will again uh, in the wake of COVID-19, but I don't think anything's ever going to be the same again. I think hybrid learning is here to stay. I think online learning has demonstrated that it can be done very well. It is not merely online courses, it's online learning, and there's a way to do that effectively. I think the new environment calls on us to collaborate more freely. Benedict is an active and engaged partner in a course sharing consortium. We've advocated strongly for it. We believe that as small institutions, we can't be experts at everything, but we can collaborate with other institutions to ensure that my students have access to everything. Uh, and so I'm excited about those opportunities for collaboration and strategic thinking. Uh, and I'm excited about sort of the social emotional aspects of um, of the environment within which we're now living. We've unfortunately experienced a very difficult racial reckoning in this country. Uh, we've heard conversations around, is it a moment or a movement? Uh, I don't know the answer to that question, but I knew that, I do know that in this moment, some of the best minds in America are thinking about it for the first time in a very long time. And I think that as long as we're thinking about it, talking about it, engaging one another with sincere hearts, open minds, and a desire to make positive change, the future can't help but be bright. So I'm very excited right now. You're describing the bright future unfolding at Benedict College. As we draw our time together to a close, I'd like to ask you, as we always ask our guests to leave our listeners with a brief final thought. So what is the brief final thought you'd like to share with us today? I think higher education is at a crossroads and I've shared that throughout this conversation. I think this is a moment that calls upon all of us to bring our best selves to the table for the very best thinking uh, that we can offer. I often say, and I will close with, be careful, be prayerful, and never be fearful. We have much work to do, and we need, again, the best minds, the, the biggest hearts together on one accord so that we can make uh, things better for all students, not just some, all students in America. Thanks so much for having me, Stephen. Well, thank you. Making things better for all students. We've been speaking with Rosalind Clark, artist, president, and CEO of Benedict College. I invite listeners to learn more about Benedict by visiting their website, benedict.edu. 
I'm also pleased that President Artis will serve as the plenary keynote speaker during the 2022 Assessment Institute in Indianapolis, held mid-October 2022. Listeners may learn more about the nation's oldest and largest higher education event focused on assessment and improvement by visiting our website, that website, assessmentinstitute.iupui.edu. President Artis, I look forward to greeting you at the Assessment Institute. And most importantly, thanks so much for your time with us today. I really, truly have enjoyed our time together. It has been absolutely a privilege and a pleasure, Stephen. Thank you for a wonderful conversation. It's always good to talk to you and uh, learn as much from your questions as I hope you will from my answers. Well, indeed we have. Thanks so much. It's been a delight. Have a great day. This has been Leading Improvements in Higher Education, the award-winning podcast service of the Assessment Institute in Indianapolis. Learn more and access other episodes at assessmentinstitute.iupui.edu. Our sponsor for this season is the Center for Assessment and Research Studies at James Madison University. Learn more at JMU. Dot edu slash assessment. Our podcast producers are Chad Beckner, Caleb Keith, and Shirley Yorger, with original music composed by Caleb Keith. If you know someone who might enjoy the podcast, please encourage them to give us a listen. We appreciate you helping to spread the word. I'm Stephen Hundley from IUPUI, inviting you to join us again for Leading Improvements in Higher Education.